I have a question I want to ask as I start today. Where did the idea inside of Christianity come from that says all we have to do is ask Jesus into our heart in order to get into heaven? Where'd that idea come from? Do not say the Bible because it doesn't come from there. This is not a scriptural concept that all you have to do is pray this prayer and you're good to go. My proof, look on any page of the Bible. It's not there. Pick a page, any page. It's not there. This is not what the scripture says. And I want you to wrestle this morning with whether or not this is a biblical concept. Because sometimes the Bible doesn't specifically say things, right? Like, the Bible doesn't specifically say, don't get an abortion. It's based on a principle that life is sacred. That the, when we say we're pro-life and we, are not, and we, and we don't want to see abortions, it's not because the Bible says no abortions. They hadn't invented abortions back then. It's based on the principle that God created you. In your mother's womb. That he is the author of life. And that what he created we have no right to destroy. That's a principle that's taught all throughout scripture. That life is sacred to God. So there's no page of scripture that says pray this prayer and you'll get into heaven. But is that a biblical concept? And I would challenge you that it's not a biblical concept at all. Where I think it comes from, the idea of it comes from, and you don't have to turn here, you can if you want to, but you don't have to because this is not where our main text is today. I I think it comes from Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, where this concept comes from. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, For this reason I know, excuse me, I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think the concept is a, is a misinterpretation of what this saying in this passage of Scripture it says, He dwells in our heart by faith. Yes, but can you make the leap from, ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved from that passage? I don't think you can. And I don't think the author of Hebrews would agree that you can. And I certainly know, and you're going to look at this in your homework this week, that Jesus doesn't agree that you can. Your homework this week is all passages from the Gospels where Jesus refutes this idea. And the sermon today is just a primer for you to start wrestling with this. Amen? So again, this passage doesn't say we need to ask Jesus into our heart. Does it say in this passage if... He dwells in our heart, we're good to go? I don't think so. Does it say that Jesus in our heart provides strength? Yes. 
Strength for what? It says so that you might be that you might be strengthened. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be or may have strength. What do you need strength for? You need strength to pick up the communion table in this church building. That thing is like 7,000 pounds. I'm not lying. Ask Ron. Ron and I moved it one day. I'm like, whoo, this thing is crazy. You need strength for that. And we were like, Jesus, help. No, okay, I'm being silly. Okay. But it talks about this concept of strength. What do we need strength for? I think the answer is that we need strength so we can strive for rest. Whoa. Don't look at the scripture yet. We're not going there yet. (laughs) But I think that it's so that we can strive for rest. Right? So that we can strive for rest. The author of Hebrews tells us in in chapter 4 that we are to strive for to enter his rest and striving for rest striving and rest they're opposites striving and rest are opposites right if i'm striving i'm certainly not resting if i'm resting i'm certainly not striving and that's where we're going to go into uh, in chapter 4 so the question is do we do each of these at the same time, or do we do them each in their turn? So I want you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And I know we used these sermons or used these scriptures last week, but I want you to, to check it out. We're going we're gonna to go over them a little bit more. Here's what the scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 4, 8 through 11. Now, this is talking about when Joshua was leading the children of Israel over the, the Jordan River into the promised land at, and taking Jericho and all of the subsequent cities that they had to drive everybody out. The author of Hebrews says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray and ask God to help us to comprehend this. Father, You tell us in the word that your Holy Spirit makes known your mysteries. And Lord, we are a people of your spirit. We believe in the working of the spirit. And so we say, Holy Spirit, come now. Teach us. Instruct us. Help us to understand what it means to strive for rest. That we could have a a good understanding of what you mean. And that we can grow in our faith. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. These two things are not diametrically opposed. I may have, I may have emphasized that a little strongly. 
They're not diametrically opposed to one another. It's not like strive or rest. It's strive to rest. These two things work together in an expression of our faith. Now, the exact how of them working together, well, that's been argued all throughout the history of Christianity. The exact how. And it's often been a heated discussion. So much so that Martin Luther, the reformer, who reclaimed the doctrine of justification by faith alone, wanted the book of James removed from the Bible. Martin Luther did not see how the book of James could be Scripture. Okay, I want you to understand something. Our heroes of the faith sometimes struggled in certain areas. This is an area where Martin Luther struggled. Okay, he wanted it removed. Because he believed that James chapter 2 taught that salvation was works-based. Because it says in verse 18 of chapter 2, which embodies his whole problem, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Basically, basically the, the author of the book of Hebrews is agreeing with James that we have to have a faith that works. We have to have a faith that works. We don't get to heaven... By faith plus works. And we can't get there by faith minus works either. We get there by faith that works. Now understand, I'm not teaching works-based salvation. It is by grace you have been saved and that through faith and that not of yourself. But if you say that you have a faith in Jesus Christ and then do nothing... James and the author of Hebrews are saying, which is the technical word for poppycock. (laughs) It's also some really good popcorn from over Redenbacher. But anyhow, it's faith that works. It's faith that works. Faith without works is dead. Let's say it again. Faith without works is dead. Right? And we can see this in every area of our life. Now, I'm a big guy. They say that this chair will hold 2,700 pounds. That's what this will hold without collapsing. I'm going to exercise some faith and sit down. This is faith with works. If I'm like, yep, I got faith that it'll hold it, and I never sit in it, do I really have faith? This is the concept. So the question is, how does this happen? How does this happen? We've looked at the scriptures where it talks about striving to enter his rest. But, but how does this happen? 
The first thing that we have to understand is that we must first acknowledge that the author of Hebrews says this, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If you're a people of God, raise your hand. Okay, for those of you who don't have your hand up, just ask me and I can tell you how to become one. Okay. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Not there remains a Sabbath rest for those who are in the world and who are lost and who are dying. Not for the rebels. I mean, he's talking here in this passage about the people of God. Friends, that's you. That's me. The people of God, there remains a Sabbath rest for us. And we have to understand this. We've got to grab a hold of that concept first and foremost. The book of Hebrews is written to New Testament believers. It's written to people who believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes to Him or comes to the Father but by Him. It's written for you and I. We're the people of God. And He says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Friends, this implies that work is still part and parcel to the normal Christian life in order for us to attain the fullest blessing. Listen. So there, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Anybody done any work today? I have. I'm working right now. Anybody, anybody else done some work today? Did you get up this morning and, and get your breakfast made or, or get your kids dressed and get them in the car? Anybody? Amen? If you did some work today, you haven't rested from your work yet. Some of us are closer. Some of us have retired. So we don't do as much work. Of course, I've heard from most of the retired people, they want to get a job again so they can have more time because they found that now that they're retired, it's even more work. Because like now you're the volunteer in every organization in, city, in the city. Right? But, but get this, work is still part and parcel to the normal Christian life. Work is still part and parcel to it. To which part of it? To all of it. In order for us to attain the fullest blessing. Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. Or when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. Is praying work? Come on, be honest. Is praying work? Yeah, it is. That's why, that's why this is more well attended than that. Cause this we kind of get to sit and receive. That we kind of get to work. Amen? Work is part and parcel to the Christian life. I am certain that Kevin Weaver would rather sit in men's training ground and listen to Ron work than to sit in the, in the children's class and work and teach. But God has called him to do that. 
and teaching that training ground class to those children. Is that work, Kevin? Amen. It's work. Guys, I love my work. I love what I do for a living. Okay? But make no mistake about it. It is work. When I am sitting there just staring at the Bible, staring at the Scriptures, saying, God, what? It's not, I'm not just sitting there casually and eating a bonbon. It's work. I know some of you are like, it looks like you're eating bonbons. (laughs) Hey, with the fat joke already. No. Self-deprecating humor is the best. Anyways, I digress. But it's work, right? It is work. It is work on February the 8th, which is a Saturday, when you're going to be invited to come here and help paint. We never finished. We never finished the painting. We've got a lot of work. That's part and parcel to the Christian life. We've not rested from our works yet. Work is part of what we do. Guys, I'm trying to say there's no cheap grace. There's no cheap grace. The grace of God is most certainly a free gift. But it is not cheap. The grace of God most certainly is free. But it is not cheap. You can't earn His grace. But when you receive His grace, it should cause you to be a worker because you love Him. The work flows out of the relationship. The work flows out of the relationship and you've got to grab that. You've got to get a hold of that. This amazing grace or gift of grace requires from us an appropriate response of loving obedience to the one who bestows it. Let me read that again just in case you're not getting it. This amazing gift of grace requires from us an appropriate response of loving obedience to the one who bestows it. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. What, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Finish the scripture for me, church. By no means. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. We are accountable for what we do with it after we receive it. We're accountable for that. And we have got to grab a hold of that. And we have got to stop preaching a false message that says it is easy to become a Christian. It is not easy. It is simple. And those are not synonyms. Easy and simple are not the same. Easy means anybody can do it. Simple means it's not complex. It's not complicated. It's simple. Faith and repentance. But if it was easy, 
Everybody do it. Why do so many people resist the Christian message? Because the Christian message says it matters how you live out your faith. It matters. This is a concept Jesus tried to explain to us. And we don't get it because we're not the first century audience and and we've made it a symbol of hope. Guys, this is not a symbol of hope. It is a symbol of death. It is the most cruel torture device ever created. It took people days to die on it. They were shocked when Jesus died in three hours. Or six hours, I guess. Whatever. They were shocked. They're like, dude, he can't be dead yet. That's why they stuck the spear in his side. Like, yep, he's dead. That was weird. What happened? Roman centurion says, surely this man is the son of God. This did not appear, this cross did not appear in Christian artwork until after everybody who had ever seen one used was off the face of the planet. Jesus said, if you, and and so we missed this. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Dying a painful death to self, crucifying the flesh. Let me put it in a modern, modern day context. If Jeff would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his electric chair and follow me. If Steve would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his lethal injection and follow me daily. This was a device of capital punishment. I know it sounds crazy. But we've turned it into something it's not. The early church didn't use this as a symbol. They used the ichthus, which is the fish. You got to get a hold of this. Being a Christian is not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. Stop telling people it's easy. You're lying to them. There are people inside of this room right now that have been believers for a number of years and you're like, you doggone right, it's not easy. Pastor, I want to get up and preach your sermon. It's not easy. It's, it's, man, it's hard. It's not complex. It's not rocket science. But sometimes the things that aren't rocket science are the hardest. What I'm trying to say is we've been preaching a false gospel. And, and if I can get anything through to you in your heart today, is that I want to correct the gospel in your life as you share it with others. So let me tell you what the gospel is. First part of the gospel, we fell through disobedience. This starts in Genesis. This starts in the book of Genesis. Guys, you can't tell people to start reading in the New Testament. You wouldn't tell them to get into the, to the Hobbit movie that came out. You know, hey, fast forward to an hour and a half through it and then start there. No, because it's not going to make sense. Right? We tell them to start in the beginning. 
The first three chapters, it explains why we need Jesus. Because we rebelled against the Holy God. They had the entire rule book. They could do anything they could think of except for one thing. They couldn't eat the fruit. Notice I said fruit. It wasn't an apple. I like what Kid Han says about it. He like, when he draws it in their cartoons, he likes to draw it more like a grenade. <laughs> Looks like a grenade hanging on a tree. It was bad. Who knows? Maybe it was an apple, but the Bible doesn't say that. It says the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, we fell through disobedience. We rebelled against God. And you have personally rebelled against God. I mean, Adam and Eve messed it up for all of us, but you've rebelled against him too. You've not always taken one day a week and set it aside for nothing but the worship of God. So you're a Sabbath breaker, just like me. You've not always told the truth. It means you're a liar, just like me. I've not always told the truth. So you've rebelled against God too. Those are his commands. So we fell through disobedience. This is part of the good news, and you have to tell people this. Don't tell them. Well, everybody's a sinner. Stop telling people that. Show them how. You say, but it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, it does. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Another way to translate that. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the proper worship of God. That's true. I'm not saying it's not true. But when I'm so busy comparing myself to everybody else, I'm like, well, I'm not as bad as Bin Laden. I'm not as bad as Hitler. So show people. By the way, that's what the law is for. The New Testament tells us that over and over again. Here's what the law is for. To stop people from justifying themselves. To leave them guilty before God. To serve as a schoolmaster to drive them to Christ. Nobody was made righteous by the law. Use the law for what it's intended for. Friends, it's okay to use the Ten Commandments. Not as a means of righteousness, but as a means of showing others where they've fallen short. Help them understand. Preachers down throughout the ages says you can't get somebody found until you get them lost first. They're already lost, but they don't realize they're lost. They're like a hard-headed man out driving through the countryside. Wife going, pull over and get directions. He goes, I ain't lost. My uncle, five years old, St. Louis, Missouri, back in the 70s, or no, I'm sorry, 60s, back in the 60s, went for his first day of kindergarten, rides the bus home. None of his brothers and sisters are on his kindergarten bus. Bus driver lets him off at the wrong stop. He's convinced it's his stop. She's like, okay, fine, get off. She, he convinced her. Don't ask me how a five-year-old convinced an adult, but he did. He got off. Man, they were freaked out. My grandma, my grandpa, his brothers, and sisters, they were all freaked out. They were looking all over. He's in St. Louis. He's not in Oil City. He's not in Rouseville. He's in a major metropolitan area. They can't find him. The police can't find him. Hours later, he comes walking up to the door. And they're like, Manuel, where have you been? We've been so worried. You were lost. And he goes, I wasn't lost. I just kept walking until I found my way home. 
There's people out there who feel like they're not lost. Scripture tells us that, that people would declare their own goodness, their own righteousness. We've got to help them to see they fell through disobedience. The next thing we have to do is show them that God taught that only death could atone for this. I didn't say the death of Jesus Christ. God has taught that through this disobedience that death is the only way to pay for this. The Old Testament was all pointing towards Jesus. God was establishing. He could have sent Jesus. Jesus could have been the first one out of Eve's womb. But God didn't do it that way. He's God. He could have done whatever he wanted. But he had to establish that death is the penalty. And show and let us see there's no other way. And that only blood can wash it away. You're going to see this later on in the book of Hebrews. There can be no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. It takes blood, a death, to wash away sin. It takes a death to wash away sin. And God taught that all throughout the Old Testament, that only death could atone for this. And then, Jesus came and died for our sins. Then Jesus came and died for Keith Lally's sin, for Keith's personal rebellion against God, for Jerry's personal rebellion against God. And I think sometimes we make the gospel too personal, actually. We say, well, God so loved the world. Are you part of the world? So God so loved Jerry. Okay, it's true. God does love Jerry. But if I'm the center of the gospel, then I got to be the center of the Christian walk, too. So if I'm going to be the sinner, let me take my real role in the sinner. I personally rebelled against him. I personally gave God, you know, the brush off. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. And he loved me enough to do something to correct it. Then Jesus came and died. After I rebelled, after I proved that my way won't work. And then the part of the gospel where I think we mess it up so bad. And then we receive eternal life by faith in that sacrifice and repentance from sin. And repentance from sin. I want to read to you some passages. It's the ones I included for you, Bonnie, so that way you can translate easier. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus speaking. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus speaking. Again, pretty sure it's Jesus. Maybe it's John the Baptist. I I could be wrong about this. Don't hold me to who's saying this right now. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now this one's definitely Jesus talking. This is in Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. 
There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the other sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. But I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus says repent a lot, by the way. He does it again in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms pretty much covers it all, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And I could preach a whole other sermon about that last line. What did he say to proclaim? Repentance and forgiveness. And we're bad as the church of going and proclaiming forgiveness. Who's got a quarter and can give it to me quickly? I need a quarter quickly. I want you to see something. Just throw it out. Toss it to me. Don't don't sling it hard. All right. I can't catch. All right. On this side of the quarter, we have a head. This is faith. On the other side of the quarter... We have a tail. This one happens to be a New York quarter, so it's got the Statue of Liberty and a picture of the state. This is repentance. Faith and repentance. Trusting in the forgiveness that he provides by his sacrifice, proclaiming the forgiveness. And repentance. Two sides of the same coin, inseparable. You can't have this side Without this side. It's not a separate message. It's not an addition to the message. It's the message. You say, Pastor, why does all this matter? Are, are we really proclaiming this? Are we, really, are we really proclaiming a false gospel? Yes, unfortunately, I believe we are. We're proclaiming a gospel in our country right now that says you pray to have Jesus come into your heart and then you can pretty much live any way you want to. And we're using passages of Scripture to proof text that. We're using passages of Scripture that are out of context to prove our point. And we're ignoring their opposites. 
We're using passages. By, it's by grace that you've been saved. That not of yourself, but through faith. It's not by works so that any man may boast. But then we ignore Hebrews chapter 4, where it says, Strive to enter his rest. I love the song I'm getting ready to quote, but I think people have misunderstood it. The song starts off this way. Why are you striving these days? And why are you trying to earn grace? No. Striving is not wrong. Earning is wrong. But grace, my friends, is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. When you really have the grace of God, it changes how you live. And if it's not changed how you live, I wonder, do you have it? And I'm not accusing anybody. I'm not saying anybody in this room doesn't really have the grace of God in their life is not born again. But I'm saying we have to go out and tell people that the evidence of God's work in your life is a transformed life. Guys, I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I wonder, why are people not different? He doesn't say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, about half the time the old is gone, the new has come. He doesn't say that, you know, part of the time they're going to be different, but then they're going to revert back to their old ways. He declares this truth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And I know that I know this, the other side of the story is that, you know, it's like a chicken with its head cut off. And sometimes our flesh tries to rear back up. It's dead and we got to reckon it dead. I mean, I know that part of the scriptures where it says reckon yourselves dead to Christ. I get it. But I'm talking about the whole time where, where there's no difference, where sin doesn't bother us. And we're creating an entire generation of believers who, have, who, have, who are buying in to a cheap grace doctrine. Buying into a cheap grace doctrine that says I can put my faith in Jesus Christ, ask Him in my heart, and then I can live any way that I want to. I had the privilege of pastoring a church who shared a property line with a decent-sized university. And I minister to those college kids who came out of churches just like this one. Who said, no, I learned in church that His grace covered it all and I can do what I want. That's what we're teaching them. That's what we're teaching. Maybe OCCA has never taught that. But that is what the church in this world is teaching. We're teaching fire insurance. Friends, Jesus doesn't want to be your fire insurance. That's like marrying my wife and telling her, you're my fallback date on Friday night if I can't find somebody else for Friday night to go hang out with. It's pretty jacked up, isn't it? She's like, no, fool, you're going to the movies with me. Right? Amen? 
Our lives should be different. Why is the gospel so powerless? Because our lives aren't different. I've discovered in 12 years of ministry, or 11 years of ministry almost, this truth. I'm not saying it should be true, but it is true. That I typically don't spend my time with Christians, people who, call, who claim to be Christians, teaching them about how we're supposed to live. I spend my time trying to convince them that they can't just rebel against what they know to be true. It's not like, hey, pastor, what am I supposed to do in this situation? What does the Bible say about this? They're like, I know that the Bible says this, but I don't have to do that. I'm the exception. Because it's by grace. Unfortunately, that's my life. By the way, it's been every pastor's life, I think, all down throughout the ages. And I think right now, though, we're losing the battle as a church. Paul was having that battle with them. Paul was trying to teach that. Like the New Testament is primarily corrective in nature. Paul trying to go in and go, whoa, you don't get to do this any way you want to. He was trying to correct a lot of stuff. But for whatever the reason, in the last 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, we're just letting it go. We're just letting it slide. Understand something. I'm not making a call for legalism. If you get legalistic, I will be the first one to call you out on it. I accidentally did that one time. For like two years, Crossroads Fellowship, the first church I planted, was super legalistic. Took me forever to correct that, felt like. As soon as I figured it out, I'm like, oh man, I turned them into a bunch of legalists. No, your works don't make you righteous. But I'm saying that God calls us to a life of holiness. We are a part of a deeper life movement. We believe that the scriptures say in the New Testament, be holy because I am holy. We believe that the church at Laodicea was counseled by Jesus to buy for themselves white robes because they were neither hot on fire for the Lord nor were they cold and refreshing. Hot and cold are both good things, friends. There's an, and I'll, preach, I'll teach on Revelation sometimes why they're both good. It was actually a reference to their city's water supply. Their city's water supply got to the city lukewarm from aqueducts because it came from hot springs and nobody wanted to drink it. And they'd go, Ugh. which is why he said, I'll spit you out of my mouth. He was talking about what they knew. That's for another day. We've got to teach people to be on fire for the Lord, hot and healing, cold and refreshing, there is no middle ground. I'm not the only preacher saying this. Okay? Somebody told me years ago, you need to read Crazy Love by Francis Chan. I'm like, what's it about? They said, da 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 I said, I already preached that message. I don't need to read that book. They're like, you got to read it. You got to read it. I read the book and I'm like, yeah, it's, I, it's a message I already preached. And they're like, yeah, but I'm, you got to read I'm like, hey, I'll get everybody else to read it. I'm already preaching that message. And not that I'm, you know, as good as Francis Chan. I'm not. But I'm just saying, like, I'm not the only one who gets this. Francis Chan was preaching one time and he, he was talking about 
this radical obedience to Jesus Christ and following and obeying what he said, or you're not his. And he said, people came up to him after the message and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is too extreme. We don't have to be this radical for for Jesus. And Francis Chan, in a typical Francis Chanism, said, oh, you're right. You're right, there's three roads. Jesus said, the road that leads to hell is wide and a lot of people will be on that and the road that leads to me is narrow and there are few that will find that. And oh, by the way, there's also this middle of the ground lukewarm road and everybody can come down that one too. He said, you're right. I forgot about the middle road that Jesus talked about. And the people were indignant and walked away. We got to quit making middle of the road Christians. Now, first of all, we need to internalize that into ourselves first. Are you a middle of the road Christian? Or do you find yourself in loving obedience to Jesus? Do you see commands in the scripture? And do you try to explain why you don't have to do them? Or do you say, yes, Lord, I obey. Let me pick an easy one. Okay? I'm not saying this because we need your money. The church is doing fine right now. The scriptures command tithing in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7 says Jesus receives our tithes in heaven. Jesus himself commanded a tithe in the Gospels. He didn't wipe it out. He said, you're so careful to tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, grace, and mercy. You should have done the former, affirming that it's correct without neglecting to do the latter. Not do the latter instead of the former, do both. Do you make an excuse why tithing doesn't work for you? Why you don't have to do it? That's an easy one to pick on because everybody understands money. Everybody understands money. Even little kids understand money. Mommy, I want a Snickers bar. Can I have some money? They understand. It's a tangible thing we can touch. So we get it. Oh, let's go a step further. Let's just get it away from money because I don't want, to, I don't want you to think, well, he's the preacher that's all about money because you know when we receive the offering, I'm going to tell you, if you're new to this church and you're not sure it's your church, keep your money. We don't want it. We believe in tithing, but we believe that's for the people who know this is their church. So let me go to a little bit more of a difficult one. Do you find yourself, when you're feeling sick, picking up the phone and calling the doctor first or getting on your knees and calling on Jesus first? Because he says in the scriptures that on the cross he carried our infirmities and disease. So where's your go-to guy? Now, I'm not anti-doctor. I'm not anti-medical profession at all. We've got some medical professionals part of our congregation. And I'm not saying we shouldn't use them. And I'm not saying Allie, who's down having brain surgery, is sinning because she's doing that. But I'm saying the first thing should be for a believer. Jesus, intervene. Jesus, come. If, I, if you heal me by the time I get to the doctor, hallelujah. Right? 
Let me give another one that's a little easier to understand, but you know, not maybe it's frequent. When you're out of town on vacation, do you find a place to go worship? Or do you do exactly what the author of Hebrews says not to do, which is give up the habit of meeting together as some are inclined to do? When you go out of town, do you take a vacation from Jesus too? Or do you find a place to go worship with other believers? I mean, we talk about the church being a church universal, and you're telling me, you telling me when you went on vacation to, to Myrtle Beach, you couldn't find any church that believed in Jesus to worship with? Really? I don't think so. Do you make excuses for your hatred? You hate somebody, you're angry at them, you let the sun go down on your anger, you want to just choke them out, and you call it righteous indignation, and you justify it, or your unforgiveness, and you, you justify it, and you say, but you don't know how bad they hurt me. You don't know how bad they hurt me. So I'm justified in this. When Jesus says, if we don't forgive, his Father in heaven won't forgive us. When Jesus says through the Apostle John in 1 John, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar and the love of God's not in you because how can you love the one you don't see when you don't love the one you do see? You see what I'm saying? This Christian life, disciples of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus is about loving obedience. Not so that Jesus accepts us, but because he accepts us. When we repent and put our faith in him, he accepts us. And then our life should reflect that. But I don't want you to take my word for it. Because I'm just a dude who sometimes gets messed up. So I want you to look at God's word this week. Homework, Monday, John chapter 14, verse 15 through 21. Tuesday, 1st John, not to be confused with the gospel of John, but the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Wednesday, back to John, the gospel, chapter 5, or 15, chapter 15, verses 5 through 11. Thursday, back to the first epistle of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Friday, Back to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. And Saturday, John chapter 3, verses 35 through 36. I said initially that it would all be Jesus' words. What I, I misspoke. I misspoke. What I meant to say, now that I'm actually looking at my scriptures, was that it was all the Apostle John's words. Who is the love apostle? He's the love disciple. He's the one who, you know, for God so loved the world. That guy. All of these scriptures, all of these scriptures are about if you don't obey, you're not Jesus's. See, this is the gospel we have to start teaching people. Because when we start teaching people that coming into the relationship with Jesus Christ should result in our obedience, then missionaries will be sent to the darkest places on the planet. Then 
Missionaries will be sent into our schools. Then missionaries will be sent into joy. Or into uh, the bronze place you work at. What's the name of that place? Franklin Bronze. How could I not remember that? Right? You know, this is what happens when we're obedient. Then missionaries are sent out into all of these places they need to be. Let me close with this story. I don't know if this story is true or not, but man, it makes a good sermon illustration. There's a couple, young couple. They've got about a six-year-old kid, and they've just had a new six-year-old boy. We're going to say the little boy's name is Rob. And, and Rob loves Jesus, and he loves his parents. He loves going to church. And they have a little sister. He, Rob has a little sister. She's just born, and her name's Phyllis. And so Rob and Phyllis and their parents, Keith and Tina, <laughs> are at church. And, and Pastor Jerry is up front doing the baby dedication. And he asks Keith and Tina in front of the whole congregation, do you promise to raise Phyllis in a godly home? And they're like, oh, yeah. You know, so they get in the car and they're going home and Rob is crying hysterically. Just that, you know, that lip sucking crying that you, when the kid can't breathe, you're like, I, where's an inhaler? You know, and they're like, they pull over. They're like, Rob, what is going on? Mom, dad, when we were at church, you promised Pastor Jerry to raise Phyllis in a godly home. And they're like, yeah. And he goes, I don't want to go live with other people. We can laugh about that anecdote. That's not true. Obviously, Tina and Keith, while old enough to be those guys' parents, are, no, I'm just kidding, are godly people. All right. That's, but you get the point. I mean, even kids sometimes see that we profess to believe this, but it doesn't line up. Man, it's, something's got to change. And I think it's the message we're proclaiming to people. Let's pray. Father, tough message today. Striving to enter your rest. Saying that our faith sh- should work. That our faith should do something. That it's not just enough to believe. Because as the Apostle James says, even the demons believe and shudder and tremble in fear. But we have to do something with this faith. So God, we confess to you that we're not always the best at doing something with our faith. And we start off by asking forgiveness. But Lord, not a forgiveness that's based upon you just letting us go do our own thing again. But a forgiveness that is based upon, we promise, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, when you come upon us, to live according to that. And to walk according to your Spirit. Lord, help us. We want to be different. Father, transform in us the message that we proclaim to others. Lord, where we'll, we'll, we'll put the bookends on the gospel. We fell through disobedience, showing people where they've rebelled and that it takes faith and repentance to come into that relationship. Father, I pray against the idea that, that salvation is works-based. Lord, I know it's not. And I pray that other people don't start thinking that it is. 
But Father, I pray for the idea that the evidence of salvation will be shown in our lives, holy and set apart to you. And we ask you to take over for the rest of this service. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.